Amen. Let's get our Bibles out and open to Psalm 139. Psalm 139, that's on page 718 in the Pew Bible in front of you. One of the things I like to make a, a practice of in the summertime is as I'm uh, doing my normal Bible studies, personal time with the Lord, whichever way that may be, constantly rotating between reading through the Bible chronologically or uh, just reading uh, on a different type of plan piece by piece or all sorts of different things. I mean, year after year, trying to always mix it up, do something different. In the summertime, I like to just spend time dwelling on the Psalms. I'll take a Psalm and I might spend sometimes weeks, even up to months in, in, a, in a one particular Psalm. And I'll just think about it and pray over it and study it and chase all the rabbits that it has in it. And uh, it's just something that I like to do. And so I spent some time in Psalm 139. It's one of my favorite Psalms. I've used portions of this so many times uh, with uh, just counseling with people and helping them. Now, some of it's so familiar, but a couple years ago, I just really spent some time in this Psalm and it just terrified me. And so uh, tonight we'll talk about the world's most dangerous prayer. Let's pray first, and then uh, we'll study. Father, we thank you for your word, God. It is perfect and errant, wonderful and special in every way. Thank you for this beautiful psalm. Thank you for everything that it teaches us. And Father God, we pray tonight you'll give us ears to hear, and Lord, that we'd have the courage to receive and respond to the things that you will say to us through this spectacular part of scripture we give you glory in advance for what you'll do in jesus name amen now as we begin i wonder how many of you have had the amazing privilege of an irs audit and then i thought about it i said you know probably those of you here that have been audited by the irs don't even won't even raise your hand to tell me that just the fact that you've been audited, you don't want to raise your hand. Doesn't, it doesn't mean you did anything wrong just because they audited you, right? Well, there you go. Thank you. There's some, there's some honesty. I mean, there's few things in the world that are worse than that. I mean, it's terrible. Just the thought of it's horrible. And, and so I thought about, well, what makes it so terrible? Well, you know, I, I mean, I remember when my wife... Uh, had her business and uh, the IRS called me and uh, said well you know there's been some changes and uh, so we're going to send an agent in to visit you and I said am I getting audited and she said no but we're sending an agent in to visit you <laughs> I said okay I was so stressed out for the next two weeks until that meeting and I mean I was and here's the thing it's not that I had anything to hide. The problem is I'm not sure if I got anything to hide or not. That's the problem. You see, the problem with an audit is you can think that you're completely, you know, good. And then they show up and suddenly you find out you're not good when you thought you were good. See, and so the thing that makes an audit so terrifying, if you really stop to think about it, is not necessarily that you have been cheating. Now, if you've been cheating, you ought to be terrified. But we're terrified of being audited even if we think that we've been completely honest about things. 
because we're not sure that the IRS has our best interests at hand. In fact, we're pretty sure they don't. And so that makes it kind of scary because if somebody's looking for something, even if you think there's nothing, it's really kind of a nerve-wracking experience. Sort of like, uh, you know, when the pastor shows up to your house unexpectedly. Now, it's not that you got anything to hide in your house, but suddenly you're not sure. You know what I mean? Like you answer the door and you're like, hey, Brother Tony. You know, I get that look. Like your mind is reeling of all the things that could potentially be. I don't, you know what I mean? Like. You know, I'm not here on an investigative mission. You know, I'm just here to see you. But anyway, don't panic. I'm not showing up at your house. I think maybe it could happen. But anyway, this is sort of the mindset of the very last two verses of Psalm 139, where David... uh, takes us on this emotional roller coaster and he gets to the end of I mean these just unbelievable ups and downs and he ends with this statement search me O God and know my heart try me and know my anxieties and see if there is any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting Now, I'm just telling you that that is really easy to sing about. And it's really easy to just read and say, isn't that wonderful? But if you just spend a little bit of time thinking about the reality of what that is saying, that to it's like calling the IRS and requesting an audit, saying, do you think you could, in fact, send me your best agent? Send them over to check me out. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me. I mean, who who would say that to God? And if if you think for just a minute that, oh, I would say that to God, you don't know God. I mean, you, you, just, you can't just jump, jump into that prayer. See if there is any wicked way in me. I mean, I'm thinking, God, you don't even have to see. Not, I can just tell you. This audit's not going to go good. And lead me in the way everlasting. Yeah, I guess in a, in a much smaller way, it's, it's like when, when I would tell my kids when they were young to clean their room. You know how that goes when your kids are young? You send them up, in my house, it was send them upstairs to clean their room, so boom, ba boom, ba bump up the stairs they go. And then, you know, the way we would know if they were cleaning their room is me or Lisa would just kind of lean into the, you know, the, the stairwell and listen because we could hear commotion. 
But you had to listen to the, there'd be this clanging and banging and slamming, you know, mostly in one of the bedrooms. There'd be all this slamming and banging and stuff flying around. And, you know, this would go on for a few minutes. And then like in a tenth of the time that it would take to clean your room, they'd reappear. Hey, Dad. I'd say, you done? Oh, you got it done. You sure? Oh, yeah. So then you go upstairs and you walk into this immaculate room. And you notice that the hinges on the closet are like bowing out from the pressure. And the bed seems to be elevated higher than it's supposed to be. And I mean, there's literally just, you know, hundreds of cubic feet of junk shoved underneath the bed. It's like welded together under there. And the closet, you know, you open the closet and you just literally get, it's like an avalanche of garbage. But it looked clean. Well, praying this prayer would be like coming down to your parents and saying, okay, you can check my room now, but you probably want to start under the bed. You probably want to look in the closet first because it's not going to go right. I mean, we can clean it up on the outside. We can all look like we got it together. But we really don't want anybody looking under the bed. And we definitely don't want anybody digging around in the closet. So let's go back to verse 1 and let's just learn with David. Let's take this journey with him through this psalm and let's learn some things about God that this psalm teaches us. The first thing I want you to see is that this psalm teaches us that God is the all-seeing God. Notice how it goes in the first four verses. Oh, Lord, you have searched me and known me. Isn't it interesting that he starts with this past tense? Well, you've already done this, which even makes it a little crazier to me that he ends with this invitation to do it. But we'll get to that. He starts, you've searched me and known me. You know my sitting down and my rising up. You understand my thought afar off. You comprehend my path and my lying down. You're acquainted with all my ways. For there is not a word on my tongue, but behold, O Lord, you know it all together. You know, there's just some verses that when I read them, I want to understand them, but it just makes my head hurt a little bit to think about it. Like verse 4. The Bible says that there's not a word on my tongue that the Lord didn't know before I spoke it. See, it's still on my tongue. It hasn't even come out of my mouth yet, and God already knows it. And not only does He know it before I say it, but He knows it all together. That means He fully understands everything about the Word that I haven't even spoken. He knows the things that are in your mind and in your heart before they ever even come out of your mouth. He fully, altogether knows and understands them. 
which must mean that, I mean, if ever there's a headache sermon, this is a headache sermon. That he knows who you are both better than you know and before you ever know. See, God knows who you are tomorrow. That, that's the thing you got to understand here. He knows who you are five years from now. Isaiah 46 says, For I am the Lord and there is none other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning, from ancient times, things that are not yet done. He says, My counsel shall stand and I will do all my pleasure. So God is all seeing. Now, let's continue. Look at verse 5. So David says, You've hedged me behind and before and laid your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. David is sort of taking in this all-seeing God, and it's just, it's just too high. It's just too much. And then he goes on to the second stanza, which would be the all-present God. So we've got the all-seeing God, number one. Number two, the all-present God. Look at verse 7. Where can I go from your spirit, or where can I flee from your presence. You see that word presence? Whenever you see that Hebrew word that we translate presence in the Old Testament, it's the word for the face of God. So it literally says, where can I flee from your face? That your face is everywhere that I am. And what exactly is your, your face doing? What are you doing when you're everywhere at one time? In Genesis 6 verse 5, the Lord saw that the wickedness of men was great in the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of their heart were evil continually. That the presence of God sees right through you. It sees you on the outside. It sees through the outside to the inside. Sees, reaches in and sees the intentions and the thoughts that his face is ever-present, that He is there. Verse 8, If I ascend into heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in hell, behold, you're there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, Surely the darkness shall fall on me, even the night shall be light about me. Indeed, the darkness shall not hide from you, but the night shines as the day. The darkness and the light are both alike to you. I mean, I just spend time worshiping, thinking about that for God, darkness, light, all of these different transitions, they, they're, he's unfazed by all of them. That none of them change the reality of who he is. That none of them, they don't, they don't dent his armor or diminish his capacity or ability. That somehow he, his, his presence and his all-seeing is the same in the dark as it is in the light. It doesn't change. It's not altered. 
that it's all the same to him. And there's more. I mean, if he sees all and he's all present, and then this third part, the, the most famous part of this psalm that starts in verse 13 is, and he's all creative, the all creative God. Look at verse 13, for, for you formed me in the inward parts. Now, well, what are the inward parts? The non-physical parts. The, the Bible says that God formed our non-physical parts. What is that? That's our soul. That our soul was formed by God. Then you covered me in my mother's womb. That's the physical part, the body. I will praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are your works and that my soul knows very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in secret and skillfully wrought in the lowest parts of the earth. Your eyes saw my substance being yet unformed. And in your book, they were all written. What was all written? The days fashioned for me when as yet there were none of them. Let's just think for a second. Why... Why is life precious? Why, why is abortion wrong? Why is euthanasia wrong? Because the Bible says that our inward parts and our frame and our covering were all formed by the Lord. And that our days were laid out before there were any. So not only does that mean that from the moment of conception that the Bible tells us that John the Baptist was filled with the Holy Spirit in his mother's womb, that, that the Bible tells us about the prophet Jeremiah, that God knew him in his mother's womb, that from the very instant of conception, it's a, it's a fully formed child to God. It has a soul and, a, and a, a spirit and a body. It has a, a future and a hope. It has all those. The child has all of those things. But what about beyond that? See, I don't think we, I don't think we as evangelical Christians struggle with that so much as we do. We've got to go past that and push forward all the way on. What happens when you're old and you feel like you're just waiting around watching the clock you can't do anything you feel like there's no usefulness for you you feel like a burden to the people around you all you have are the things that used to be true that you used to could do that Don't you see how unbiblical that is? No, the Bible says that, that all of the days were fashioned or ordained. That every single day on earth has been fashioned by God. Every day, all the way 
till the very end. That if breath is coming in and out of your lungs, then it's a day ordained by God. You see, we, we live in a culture that places no value in the beginning and in the end. That makes life expendable at the two extremes. You see, because at the two extremes, life seems so inconvenient. It seems so easily remedied. And so we've, I mean, my generation has grown up in a generation where the beginning stage of life has just been completely trampled across. And now we're careening into a season, it would appear, that the latter stage of life is about to be treated just the same way. And God says, no, they're fashioned for me. That God made them and he ordained them before they even were. Look at verse 17. How precious also are your thoughts to me, O God. How great is the sum of them. If I should count them, they would be more in number than the sand. When I awake, I am still with you. So what you're seeing here is that as, you know... I don't think it's hard to see the unfolding of, of the all-seeing God and the all-present God and the all-creative God. But what's happening to David is what would happen to me and you if we were honest with this psalm. Is that as you begin to wrestle in your heart with the reality of what this psalm is saying, that, that God already knows everything and because he's everywhere, that everywhere he is, he's in charge of everything. You see, that he, he not only knows everything, he's not only ever-present, but he created and made and rules over everything. And so he knows it, he sees it, and he's in charge of it. And then it begins to really push against us. Then, then, we, then we start to feel this pushback that if you... Now, take another look at this psalm. You see David do exactly that. See, I used to just read through it like I just did, and I used to just see the things that I just shared with you. But I think that's really missing all of the drama that's being played out before us. See, the first stanza, the part about the all-seeing God, that's David saying, this is just too much for me. I, I, I can't handle this. I don't want to think about this. This is just stressing me out. When he says in verse 6, he says, such knowledge is too wonderful for me. You know, that, that sounds like a compliment. That's not a compliment. That's, that's David saying, this knowledge is blowing my mind. It's, it's too wonderful for me, like it's too far away. It's too high for me. It's too grand for me. It's just too much. It's, it's, it's giving me a headache. And what's giving him a headache? The previous verse in verse 5, he says, 
you have hedged me behind and before and laid your hand upon me. You see that God who sees everything, who knows all the intentions and thoughts of our mind and heart, that, that as if that's not earth-shattering enough, he's got his hand on you. And that he's hedged behind and before you. That his hand, that hand of all seeing is, if you just think about that in honesty, you cannot not begin to feel a little bit suffocated, a little bit smothered, a little bit like, I don't really like that. I don't really feel comfortable about that. I'm not sure I want an all-knowing, all-seeing hand on me all the time. See, David is... He, he is just submitting in the first part of the psalm. I, I can't handle this. I just can't handle it. And so what do we do when we can't handle something? What do we always do when we can't handle something? We run. That's what we do. And so the second part is about I'm, I'm out of here. Verse 7. Where can I go from your spirit? You see, it, it sounds like when he says, or where can I flee from your presence? It's presence, it sounds like he's sort of just saying, Oh, well, isn't this wonderful that no matter where I go, that's where you are. That's not what he's saying. These are the exact same identical Hebrew words as Jonah chapter one. And nobody thinks that's good. Nobody reads Jonah chapter one, verse three, that says, But Jonah arose. To flee to Tarshish. See, he was sent to Nineveh. God spoke to him and said, go to Nineveh. But he arose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. Exact same phrase, from the presence of his face. He was out of there. Jonah couldn't handle it, so Jonah ran the other direction. And David's saying, I want to run. I want to run. I want freedom. I want to be able to, I want to be able to take a, a breather from your hand being on me. I want to be able to have somewhere, some time. I want to be able to think a thought that you don't know. I want to be able to, to say a word that you don't hear. I want to be able to Go somewhere that's deep enough, dark enough, secret enough where you don't always see me. It's just too much pressure. I just can't, I just can't understand that. And you see, whenever something starts pushing on our, our freedom, whenever that phone call or that letter comes that says you are being audited, Thoughts begin to pummel your mind about, hmm, am I sure that I did everything I was supposed to do the way I was supposed to do it? And really, who can be sure of that? You think the tax code is confusing. What about God? What millisecond of your life 
Have you ever lived that you feel confident enough to go, yeah, I'm good with that. Go ahead and scan that second. It's a good second. I mean, thoughts, intentions. I mean, we live in a world where we, we just relegate everything to behavior. Man, if you can just act like you got it together, well, you know. But you see, here's the danger. The danger is overlooking the fact that it bothers us. When something infringes on our freedom, it bothers us. Our, even if the freedom is perceived, it, it bothers us. We don't like that because we don't understand that. And we believe more today in this culture than ever before in history that freedom is such a great thing. Well, it is. If you're talking about democracy, but it's an absolutely horrifying, terrible thing if you're talking about theology. You see, if you limit your theology to that which you can understand, you are going to have monumental problems. Uh, let me illustrate. Whenever I have this sort of conversation with a group of people, it's very easy for me to instantly let everybody in the room know what I mean. I can say, now, is there anybody in this room that doesn't believe in the Trinity? And no one ever raises their hand. I mean, unless T.D. Jakes was there, but he's never there, so. <laughs> Sorry. But you don't understand the Trinity. You don't even barely understand the Trinity. The Trinity just blows your mind. But you know what? No one is upset about the Trinity. You don't get it. You're never going to get it. And you're fine with that. You know why? Because the Trinity doesn't threaten you. The Trinity doesn't press on you. The fact that God exists in three persons simultaneously at one time is not threatening news. But if God sees everything and is ever-present and in control around you all the time, now that we might have a problem with. You see? We don't understand that, but that bothers us. Well, why? Why doesn't the Trinity bother you? Why don't you stay up at night just racking your brain about that? Because... See, it doesn't, it's not personally infringing on what I believe to be my rights. So, David says, if I ascend to heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in hell, behold, you're there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the outermost parts of the sea. And then look at what he says in verse 10. Even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. Now, he starts out by saying, this is too much for me. Then he moves into the second part that's like, well, uh, so what am I going to do? I'm going to run. But then, in the process of, you know, running away, pulling a Jonah, trying to get away and go to the 
the, the uttermost other direction, which that doesn't work, and then ends up in the uttermost parts of the sea, which David mentions, and that doesn't work. And then Jonah finds out that even in the midst of all of his running, guess what? This God who's all-seeing and all-knowing and in control, this all-creative God, he's even got a fish lined up. He's got every little detail lined up for Jonah. All these same things. Now, David's going through this progression of, I want to get on a boat, and I want to go to Tarshish, and I want to get away, and I want to do my own thing but then in the belly of the fish or at the moment we get to verse 10 they both come to this monumental understanding of wait a second now even there wherever I am even in a fish even after I've run every which way I can and tried to hide in all the dark places I can think of even in that moment your hand leads me and your right hand holds me and suddenly, you, you, the tension in this psalm, the, the grip starts to loosen. And David begins to relinquish and surrender and realize, wait a minute. Maybe this battle is not a battle that I want to win. You see, if you're free... Now listen closely to what I'm about to say. If you're free, then there's no hand to lead you and no hand to guide you. Is that really what you want? Do you really want to be free from the leading hand and the guiding hand that's upon you? Is that really something that a rational person would ever actually want? And so you see the psalm starts to turn. And it's like David goes from, I don't, this is too much for me, that I'm going to run away from you, to now he's starting to realize, well, not only is it futile to run, but it's, it's foolish. That I don't really, I don't want to get away. Look at what he says in verse 11. If I say, surely the darkness shall fall on me, even the night shall be light about me, Indeed, the darkness shall not hide from you, but the night shines as day. The darkness and the light are both alike to you. Now, for example, whenever you see in the Old Testament that word darkness, darkness is always, uh, it's not, it doesn't mean darkness as in the lights are turned out. Darkness means suffering. It means danger. It means terror. It means separation. It's scary. It's bad. But if you have a God whose hand is upon you and whose hand is leading you and guiding you, then if you're in the dark and you can't see, the darkness is still a bit uncomfortable and it's still not your, your, your favorite place to be, but it does change the experience of the darkness. Right? See, there's this story about I'm sure I've told you this before. When, when my wife was just a little girl, 
And, uh, you know, my, my father-in-law was pastoring his church. And so one Sunday, it's one of my favorite stories about the Sunday that, uh, you know, if you knew my father-in-law, you know that uh, he, every conversation is like one of my sermons. So you might as well just get a sack lunch if he starts talking to somebody. And so every Sunday, of course, after church, the kids would just starve to death, you know, I mean, waiting to go because he'd be talking to somebody. And so Joanne would just, you know, sit down and who knows what. Lisa falls asleep on the front pew. They turn all the lights out and go to lunch. And they're driving to the restaurant. Brother and sister in the back, everybody yakking and going. And suddenly, uh-oh, hey, where's Lisa? And little Lisa, <gasps> now, if you've ever been in here when the lights go out, it is sure enough dark. And so Lisa's sleeping on the front pew in the pitch dark in this big room by herself. And so they turn around and they hightail it back to the church. Not knowing if they were going to find this terrorized little girl or what was going to happen. And of course they get there and, you know, I could have told them that. There ain't nothing waking that girl up. So she's snoozing. But you see, if she'd have woke up in that room by herself, it would have been terrifying. She's in a room she spent her whole life in. She's in a room that she associates with safety and peace and comfort. And everything about that place is positive to her. But yet by yourself in a room of, with no light, it becomes scary. And so David is he's saying, now wait a minute. Even, in the, even when there's terror, even when there's despair, even when there's terrible things, it's, it, it, it's coming against me, but it's still like the light to you, God. And if your hand is the one guiding me and leading me, and if it's the same to you, if you already know, then that changes the way I approach these, these dark places in my life. And then he says in verse 17, so, so how precious also are your thoughts to me. See, he's he's changing directions. He says, oh, how great are the sum of them. The same thoughts that he's already said, they're just giving me a headache. I can't understand them. They're too, this is too much. But, wow, how precious they must be. If you should count them, they would be more in number than the sand. And he says, when I awake, I'm still with you. See, when he says, when I awake, I'm still with you, he doesn't mean when I'm asleep and I have a bad dream and I wake up and I realize that the dream wasn't real and that you're still with me. That is not what he means at all. He means what he means in Psalm 17 where he says, as for me, I will see your face in righteousness. I shall be satisfied when I awake in your likeness. He means when I awake from death. He means when all of this plays out, when the end comes, when finally this journey that I'm on comes to a conclusion, a completion, I'm going to awake and I'm going to be with you. And so that changes the way that I 
experience this time with your hand upon me as you lead me and you guide me. That in the midst of all of this, I'm going to be in your presence. In fact, I'm never not going to be in your presence. I'm always going to be in your presence. I'm going to eternally be in your presence. That I am, I've already started my eternal journey in your presence to some degree. I just haven't fully uh, experienced the fullness of all that it's one day going to be in glory. But I'm in it right now. That the, the beginning of that journey has already taken place. That's a pretty amazing reality. So how? This is the million-dollar question. Because I think where the problem comes in, in this conversation about the omni-characteristics of God, the incommunicable attributes of God, the ways that God is utterly and completely unlike us, in the way that he's all-seeing, in the way that he's all-knowing, in the way that he's all-creating and ruling over. You see, where the problem between what the Bible teaches about the God that we serve and then our just reluctance to allow that to permeate into the experience of our lives. Maybe you could say the clash between our freedom and God's sovereignty. Seems like a hot topic around here these days. I like it. Well, how does David make this transition? I mean, rather than get a theology book out and ask a professor or make an appointment and come in and see your pastor, why not first just look at a passage of Scripture like Psalm 139 and say, well, now how does David traverse this bridge? I think it's the last part of this journey. It's the final stanza where we see the fourth attribute of God, which is that he's all holy. Notice what David says, verse 19. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. Depart from me, therefore, you bloodthirsty men. For they speak against you wickedly. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate them, O Lord, who hate you? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with perfect hatred. I count them as my enemies and so what we have here is this the zeal of David for God that that like it sounds this sounds to me like what Peter would say in the New Testament this this is just zeal it's just words flying off your mouth that really you know you're just saying things because you're excited and you're just so zealous for God and you just want to God you know God I never turn my back on you I'm never going to forsake you Wherever you go, I'm going, wherever that is. But it's David's way of, in his zeal, communicating to you and me that 
the God of Psalm 139, the God of the Bible, is an all-holy God who, whose enemies are always wrong, whose opposition is always wicked, whose name is to be revered when spoken. See, all of these things that David is expressing are expressions of the holiness of God and the wickedness of anyone who would come against that. And he's just trying to side with the holiness of God and saying, I understand now who you are. Which is what the entire Bible would teach us about God. That he's a good God. That he's a holy God, he's a righteous God, but if he's holy and righteous, then he's good because everything that's holy and righteous is good. And I think the way David traverses this is the goodness of God. I mean, the Bible says in Psalm 100, verse 5, that the Lord is good. The, the psalmist loved to say in Psalm 106 and Psalm 107, give thanks to the Lord for he is good. We sing it all the time. Psalm 34, taste and see that the Lord is good, that he's good. So you see, what's the problem with the sovereignty of God? What bothers us about the sovereignty of God? It's the same thing that bothers us about the IRS. You see, the way you're going to embrace the reality of what Scripture teaches about God is you have to traverse that space between our freedom and His sovereignty with the goodness of God. That David comes to the conclusion and the realization that God is a good God. And if He's a good God, if He's everything He says He is, then suddenly the fact that His hand is ever on me suddenly doesn't feel that suffocating. If He really is a good God, then suddenly the fact that He knows everything and hears everything and sees everything is not quite as terrifying. Now, I'm still terrified by the fact that he's utterly and completely holy, that David has seen enough of the holiness of God to know that that's not something you want to mess around with. I mean, he doesn't just know all the, the, the interactions Moses had, but he had his own interactions. Remember, David had the Ark of the Covenant. He was there when... Uzzah put his hand on it. I mean, it just sort of got off balance a little bit. It was just a moment of, you know, uh-oh, it might fall. It was just a moment of, you know, good intention. And the minute he touched the Ark of the Covenant, he was dead. He was obliterated. It was over. That's the holiness of God. That's still scary. But if he's good, if he's good, then the fact that he's always with me and can always see me, that he knows everything, that he's present everywhere, that he's not... Listen, when the Bible tells us that God is there, you need to understand something, that God is not there in, you know, 
that the essence of God isn't spread across everywhere at one time so that what you have when God is there is one one bazillionth of God that's spread across everywhere that is. You have the fullness of God everywhere. That God is infinitely replicated in every place. His presence is there. His, that's why the Bible's saying, where can you go from his face? His face is there. You see, the way you know someone is you look at their face. That's how you know who they are. The way you're sure someone's there is by their face. You know, you walk up behind someone and tap them on the shoulder, and you think that's the person. You're not sure that's the person. But when they turn around, you instantly know who that person is. The face of God is there with you all the time. Everywhere you go, you cannot escape it. But if he's good... And if his hand is upon me, and it leads me and guides me, then I would be able to come to the realization at the end of the journey and pray, search me, O God, and know my heart. Because you're good. Because you're good. You see, you try me and know my anxieties. Because suddenly it's, suddenly you realize that the best place you can be is under the hand of God, this good God. And so if he wants to see that, that, that there's any wicked way in me, well, he already knows that. You see, it's the reality that I am praying a prayer that is inviting God to do what God's already doing and has already been doing. That he's always been doing this and that he, he's saved me and ushered me into his presence and into his family. That he's, he's, he's transferred my citizenship from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. All the while he's searching me and knowing me and testing me. And in all of that he's doing all of these things. And, the, and that God is a good God. And he's, he's going to lead me in the way everlasting. You see, David ends with, after all that's said and done, after I've prayed the most dangerous prayer that anybody could ever pray, after my heart gets around the reality of what the Bible teaches me about God, that we can spend countless hours debating and bickering about free will and sovereignty and every other theological nuance that you want to. The end of the day is going to end the same way. You cannot hide anything from God. You've never done anything that he didn't know you were going to do before the foundation of the world. You've never experienced anything that he didn't know you were going to experience. That you've never crept out, snuck out, hid dark enough, deep enough, far enough. It never happened. And it never will because he doesn't miss anything. And if you're here and breathing, then that's a remarkable reality, that a testimony to the goodness of God because certainly none of us deserve that. And so freedom is not what you should want. You shouldn't want away from the hand that leads and guides you. You should know better than that. 
You should know that you're irresponsible. You should know that you're not trustworthy. And how might you know that? Because what was the process of you coming into fellowship with God? Was it not the process of you, really God pulling the curtain back of your wickedness and you seeing the reality of how wicked you are for the first time that brought you into a love relationship with Him? Is that not how all that happened? So then what on earth could possibly create in you a desire to go back to being in control? That is insanity. So David's praying. God, don't ever leave my don't don't ever leave my presence. Don't ever take your hand off me. Search me and know me. Just keep your hand on me. The hand I thought was suffocating me is the most glorious reality that anybody could ever, ever know in all this world. And so David's saying, please don't take your hand off me. And then one would come through his lineage that generations later, from the line of David, the Savior would come. And as David and everyone else who reckons with the reality of who God is and the precious, glorious privilege of His presence and hand upon our life, as, every, as, as all of eternity up into this point that knows and has experienced the love and grace of God is clinging to the reality that the hand of God is upon them, Jesus hangs dying on the cross praying a different psalm. He didn't pray Psalm 139. He prayed the opposite psalm. He prayed Psalm 22. He didn't say, God, oh, keep your hand on me, Lord. God, thank you. Search me. Know me. No, no. Jesus is dying on the cross, and he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why have you left me? Why is there space between you and me? He said, why are you so far from helping me? And from the words of my groaning, that Jesus is experiencing the very separation that we think we want. Jesus got the full freedom of separation from God on the cross. And he's saying, no, no, not separation. I want your hand. I need you. Why have you forsaken me? Why have you left me? Jesus lost the presence of God so that you never will. He prayed Psalm 22 so me and you could pray Psalm 139. He bore it all on him. You see how everything is reversed? That you see how David is saying, God, 
Thank you that even when I'm in the darkness, it's like light. Jesus is dying on the cross and the light turns to darkness. That it's the, it's the distance of God that brings the agony of the Savior. Listen, you need to check your heart and understand that what you never want is freedom from God. Your worst nightmare is freedom from God. And your greatest joy should be what the Bible teaches about the impossibility of that for the saved. Because if there were any possible way that a saved person could achieve freedom from God, trust me, we would figure out how to do it, and it would be a catastrophe. This is why the Bible says that you're in the palm of my hand and nothing can ever take you out of it, that nothing can separate you from my love, that over and over the Bible is saying, no, what you need to be glorying in and celebrating in is your lack of freedom in me because it's so wonderful. Because my hand is a good hand and it's leading you and guiding you everywhere that you go. See, there's no refuge from him. There's only refuge in him. For all of us in here tonight, The only cave of Adullam for a New Testament believer is the palm of Jesus' hand. That's the only place of refuge. There will be no peace apart from that. There will be no security apart from that. There will be no joy apart from that. There will be nothing but suffering and pain eternally apart from that. Thank God for his hand that rests upon his children. And one last thing. Not only is he good. As if his goodness would be... I think I would, I would say to God, your goodness is just too much. It's too much for me to comprehend. It's too much for me to understand. So it's not that God needs to go further. It's not that God needs to pile it on, but he does anyway. Not only is he good, but he finds his delight in you and me, that he rejoices over us. Now you really have to think about this with me for a second. That in this moment, when we're in this room and everyone's eyes are open and the lights are on and we can all see each other for the made-up, put-together hypocrites that we really are. But in the reality of where you sit right now, in the truth of who you are in the eyes of God, in the horror of every thought 
and intention known by a holy and righteous God of every error, every little, tiny, minuscule, whether intended or unintended sin is just blazing and obvious. In that arena, the God of heaven says, I rejoice in you. Here's what he says in Isaiah 62. He says to his people that you shall be a crown of beauty in the hand of the Lord, a royal diadem in the hand of your God. You shall no more be termed forsaken, and your land shall no more be deemed desolate. But you shall be called, my delight is in her, and your land married. For the Lord delights in you, and your land shall be married. As the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. That is so amazing that this sovereign God who sees and knows everything, I mean, it's one thing. It's one thing for me to stand up here behind this podium and preach God's word. But it's a whole another reality to stop and ponder on the bare nakedness with which God sees me and the reality of the scope of the way God knows me and to think that he rejoices over me is spectacular. And if all of that is true, then and only then will I find the courage to come before God and say, God, search me and know me. I invite you to do what you're already doing. I'm not afraid anymore. I know that you're holy, but your goodness ushers me closer. That somehow it brings me great comfort when days are dark and times are hard, that though I can't see what's in front of me, your hand is guiding me and leading me. And whatever it is, it's never caught God off guard. Never. Let's stand. Bow our heads.